0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Scott Sunquist on the benefits of knowing and faithfully reading Christian history.
1: Somebody said, you, you mentioned we shouldn't expect that the government and society in the West is going to be favorable towards Christianity again. I said, no, absolutely not. I said, we do better to study more of the first five centuries of Christianity in Asia and Europe than to study the Reformation or even the 18th or 19th century. That's not going to help us much, because that's not our context. Our context is more and more going to be like the first five centuries, we're we resisted and we have to be faithful, we have to be allow ourselves to be countercultural, and that's okay. And then uh, to be willing to suffer uh, what it's going to take to be faithful when the larger society may punish us for that.
0: Scott Sunquist next. Dr. Scott Sunquist believes the study of Christian history goes beyond merely knowing events from the past. He says what's involved in faithfully reading Christian history, among other things, is discovering lessons and encouragement to live our own Christian lives to the glory of God. Dr. Sunquist is president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, author of many books including The Unexpected Christian Century, and his latest, which is our subject today, The Shape of of Christian History, Continuity and Diversity in the Global Church. Dr. Sunquist. first tell us a bit about your passion for history, especially Christian history, and why it should be of interest to us. From the time I was in
1: college, I, I always was asking questions about what went on before and found out that I was interested in understanding people, places, institutions, according to their past. And uh, then when I went off to graduate school, um, I found out that One of my big passions was both the history of the church, beginning with scripture, and then right on through. And then I got caught up in a PhD program in early Asian Christianity, because I felt like uh, there was a missing gap. My study of Christian history, everything went to the West. And I asked the question, we were planning on going to Asia, whatever happened with Christianity never come to Asia before. So I did a dissertation on Persian Christianity, which was actually stronger than Roman, the, the, the history in the Roman Empire in the first uh, three, four, five centuries. And I said, why don't we know about this? And the reason we didn't is because it didn't become a dominant form of Christendom. And so I've always been inquisitive about that. And then later on, I got involved in projects, uh, the Dictionary of Asian Christianity, describing 2,000 years of Asian Christianity, and then the History of the World Christian Movement Project, describing 2,000 years of global Christianity, And so after, uh, you know, 30 years or so of that, I began to think, uh, wow, this is really important. This helps to to explain who we are, why we do what we do, mistakes we've made in the past, and it's to our benefit to understand it well. But a lot of the history that I was taught was very Western-centered, and it was very truncated, uh, not necessarily out of malice, but it's just that's what we knew. And uh, so I've been very fortunate to be able to study with uh, historians from around the world and fill in that picture a lot, but I would never really sat down and talked about the, uh, the theory or the historiography behind what I'd been doing.
0: You've mentioned some of your involvements around the world. I, I know you've taught in various countries of the world, which has enriched this passion, as you, you've kind of just described, for, for Christian history. And it also enabled you to see uh, some Western assumptions about Christianity that can mislead us. Talk about some of what those are and and how they uh, can mislead us.
1: Yeah, well, in that book that I uh, did about five years ago, The Unexpected Christianity, Christians in the West expected that uh, Christianity would just continue to grow in the West and that then around the world, and that they had this watchword, the evangelization of the world in our generation. Within one generation, the whole world would be evangelized by the West and uh, retain its strength in the West. It was a false assumption. As a matter of fact, most of that transformation took place by Africans and by Asians with the earlier help of missionaries. And today, I think many people still have assumptions that Western Christianity and a Western Christendom is expected in the norm as the gospel goes out eventually the gospel grows and then whole nations become christian you become you know great britain with the anglican church or germany with the lutheran german church and everything that was never jesus intent there's nowhere he expresses that in fact he says my kingdom is not of this world and so the kingdom will spread differently so when you don't write from those western assumptions you don't look for nations becoming christian you begin to see the movements that um, are sort of subterranean or harder to to discern and then you begin to see things differently Uh, i i introduced my book talking about a quotation that andrew walls made at a conference where he said um, western theology is too small for the global church and I would say Western church history is too small to understand uh, what God is doing in the global
0: church. As I recall in your book, you you actually have a theory for the study of global Christian history. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's a historiography, so it's a way of this I'm, I'm basically saying this is the way we've studied history in the past. These are things that are helpful, but this is the way it needs to be stu- studied. And in a phrase, Any history of any subject needs to be studied on its own terms. And I came to this conclusion when I was asked to, uh, there there were Chinese scholars in a major university in China that were fascinated by Christian history, but they didn't understand it. They couldn't figure out what was going on because they had Marxist and Maoist assumptions. So they were studying a Christian history with Maoist Marxist assumptions, and they couldn't make sense of it. Well, you have to study Christianity on its own assumptions, and then it makes sense. Both it makes sense as a movement, and it makes sense of how you critique it. And I think it's important to do both, to understand it and critique it. So if you're studying the history of a bank, you would you would ask questions about interest rates, about trade, about you know that sort of thing. You would not necessarily ask questions about atmospheric pressure uh, or, or something like that. That would be completely irrelevant. So they couldn't understand why, in China, these Western people would abandon their families and come to China, and even if a child died of malaria, they would stay there. Why would they do that? It doesn't make sense economically, because their materialist philosophy uh, didn't help them at all. As a matter of fact, it confused them. So I told them that you had to study Christianity on its own terms, and that's where I came up with the basic uh, concept of uh, sort of a, that Christianity is a centered set faith, and it's centered on the cross of Christ. And that provides your interpretive key. So, my original title for the book was Time, Cross, and Glory. And that helps to make sense of how we study church history, understand it. God invented time. Uh, and in most religions of the world, there's not an understanding of creation. So, you have to start with an understanding of creation. And the Christians believe that God started things in a certain manner. And then there's a center to history. Now, that's an odd thing to talk about. What does it mean to have a center of history? Well, history all revolves, for Christians, it all revolves around the cross. And and then it has an end. History doesn't go on forever. And its end will be glory. It will be the full uh, revealing of God's glory. Uh, but by and large, that's sort of the way that we have to study church history. And then I also mention that it has to be told as a story. And um, that's that's a problem for a purely Enlightenment person, because whose story is it? And how are you going to tell the story? And what do you use as a part of the story? And what's going to hold the story together? And that's the part of the artistic part of the historian's craft.
0: Yeah. Well, my guest today on His People is Dr. Scott Sunquist, president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. We're talking about his new book, The Shape of Christian History, Continuity and Diversity in the Global Church. And as you've explained, Dr. Sunquist, that uh, for those of us who live in the West, in the U.S., in Europe, and some other places, uh, our understanding of, of, of Christian history, at least generally, focuses on, obviously, Scripture and what happened uh, in, in the biblical accounts, and then uh, it, largely, I would think, in Europe. H- how aware uh, are are those of us who live in the West of uh, of the global aspect of, of Christian history in other words as you've just explained what what has occurred in Asia what has occurred in Africa and then I'm wondering how, how aware are they of what's happened in the West or has that been primarily what they've been taught to in the West uh, we are beginning to be more aware of what's going on in the world but I find there's uh,
1: it's very difficult I mean it's much easier just to focus on ourselves and our own people. But if we do that, we're creating, you know, ongoing tribalism and nationalism, and the church is supposed to break that down. So I would suggest we have to work real hard to study global Christianity and not just our Christianity. And it's not just the West that's like that. When I did the Dictionary of Asian Christianity, I would go to Japan and tell them that we want them to write articles for Japanese Christianity. I would give examples from Korea. And uh, they would say, what? I don't know that. And, And it's a very common thing. Uh, of what happened in Korea, or I'd go to China and talk about examples from Korea or Japan, and they wouldn't know. For example, I'd go to Japan and talk about John Sung, this great missionary in China, and they say, Who's he? I said, Well, yeah, he yeah, she was the greatest evangelist in all of Asia. He probably evangelized more people than Billy Graham. They knew Billy Graham, but they wouldn't know John Sung. Hmm. And so that's because the Christianity they're taught is nationalistic. They they learn about Japanese Christianity. And so if that's the case, we're reinforcing nationalism, and the gospel is to break down every barrier. Therefore, I think it's important to teach global or worldwide Christianity so that we begin to see God's church as a global movement and not just reinforcing our tribe or our nation. In Singapore, I would teach Western Christianity and Asian Christianity, and the students love studying Western Christianity because they had so many resources, so many books about Wesley and about Luther and Augustine, go on and on. And then I teach Asian Christian, they didn't have much interest. And that's one reason that I uh, worked on the dictionary of Asian Christian is to give them a good resource to reinforce their study of their own history. So a lot of it is a matter of resources that are available, but whether it's you're in Asia or Africa, or you're in the West, uh, it's very important to understand Christianity not just as local, but as something that is more diverse than anything that we can imagine in our modern universities.
0: And one of the major themes of your book, The Shape of Christian History, is how eschatology or the end times, the, the hope that we have for those end times, for Jesus' return, for heaven, and all of those things. That, can you talk about the the, the foundational role of eschatology
1: if we know where we're going uh, there's a better chance we critique you know what we're doing in this uh, age in this time and when it comes to history I think it's important to be able to not just write the history but to be able to critique it and not make everything just sort of neutral this happened and this happened, and this happened. that's kind of boring uh, when I used to write uh, history I have would have publishers say you're using too many adjectives and adverbs And that's that's what makes it exciting, you know, (laughs) the adjectives are what make reading worth reading. But uh, and I think we need to use adjectives in order to say, no, these things were done poorly and they they misrepresented the gospel. How do you know that? Because we know what was commanded. We know where we're going. And so if you know where you're going and you're working at something that goes completely against that, you can provide a critique. All teaching uh, has a pedagogy. Uh, and ethical dimension to it. In other words, all teaching has a trajectory. And everything that we teach, we're, we're we're teaching some morality and ethics, whether we like it or not. Um, and so we need to be conscious of that and admit it, and then say, this is how I'm critiquing this. I'm critiquing it on its own terms. This is what Christians say they do. This is they identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. But look what they did here. You know, they were cooperating with capitalism, they were cooperating with slave trade or something. And so we can provide a rich theological critique as historians.
0: Uh, In terms of Christianity's remarkable transformation, just looking at recent history, in the past couple of generations, the transformation, the growth, particularly in places where the conditions were adverse, and you cite China, uh, which, which essentially grew and flourished in the soil of communism, I think is how you describe it. Can, can you talk about that, uh, China? And uh, and I, I know you've referenced Africa as well, but where uh, we, we've particularly seen a remarkable growth and change just in, in the recent past.
1: I would expand that and say most of the places that Christianity grew in the last part of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century were places where Christianity was opposed by the government and the larger society, hmm. Um, I've spent some time in Cambodia and Vietnam and China, uh, not so much in Nepal, um, places in Africa. And Christianity, uh, it it, it mostly grows among people who are poor, who are more needy. But not only that, in Singapore and some places in China, it's growing among the very well-educated people. And so it grows at all different levels but it grows in a healthy way when it's not dependent upon uh, the the government for support. When I say support, I mean government protection, you know, like um, blue laws made it sure that people couldn't go shopping. They had to go to church or do something else. They couldn't even play baseball on Sunday mornings, you know? Uh, Well, we don't have that kind of protection. We don't have the 10 commandments at the beginning of most courthouses the way we used to, we still in some. And so if a larger society is not protecting you, you come to faith in christ uh you have to count the cost and i've talked to some of those uh professors for example that i'm talking about in china and um they were very thoughtful about uh why they were studying christianity they were committed they they knew it was true but many of them were communist party members in order to maintain their position as a professor so they're making compromises in order to be faithful to christ and help lead their they're students to faith in Christ, and it's a struggle. So every day they, they deal with that struggle, and some of them lose their jobs. So uh, when, when you count the costs like that, you realize the vitality of Christianity. Why would anybody make a sacrifice like that? Oh, it is so wonderful to know God. It is so wonderful to follow Jesus. I, I've counted the costs, and I can't imagine not following Jesus. Uh, that is not always the case in the West where it's been easy, Uh, When it's hard, you count the cost, and then those people stand out as shining stars in the dark night.
0: So where Christianity has grown, the the transformation of Christianity globally is, as you said, in the recent past, late 20th, early 21st centuries, in areas where it is opposed, actually, by the government. One thing that you say in your book is that that is why it's important to see how Christianity has interacted with the world's rulers— both in the recent but in the distant past because right. there's a, there's a remarkable uh, truth that there's a line that comes through that through history
1: I was just doing a seminar here at this camp and um, somebody said you, you mentioned on Monday that uh, we shouldn't expect that Christian that the government and society in the West is going to be favorable towards Christianity again I said no absolutely not I said we do better to study more of the first five centuries of Christianity in Asia and Europe than to study the Reformation or even the 18th or 19th century. That's not going to help us much because that's not our context. Our context is more and more going to be like the first five centuries where we're resisted and we have to be faithful. We have to be allow ourselves to be countercultural, and that's okay. And then uh, to be willing to suffer uh, what it's going to take to be faithful when the larger society may punish us for that one of the reasons we must listen to the global church is because they've existed and they've grown and they've found ways of being healthy even while government society neighbors other religions resist and we need to learn that because that's never been our context our context has always been to be in a place where Christianity was respected we're not respected today and so we need to learn from the early church we need to learn from the global
0: church. Are there any lessons that you would, again, I don't want to steal a thunder from your book, but is there a lesson or two that maybe as you look back, I mean, of course, we have scripture, we have the interaction of the apostles, the early disciples with the in the book of Acts with the governing authorities there, but then through history.
1: A lot of us think that Christianity and our church is dependent upon structures. It's dependent upon buildings. It's dependent upon institutions. Christianity is more like a thin red thread running throughout the global uh, history of the world. What I mean by that is it's not a big institution. It's not just publications and it's not about, you know, big seminaries Though you should go to my seminary, but it's really about words spoken in the air. And I've met these people and I've written about these people who simply heard about the love of God and that God was a creator. And they said, I thought there was a creator God. I mean, there really is, and they find out about him, and they say that God came to earth to show us how to live and to pay. I knew that we were wrong. I knew we were in trouble, you know, with God, and we've been trying to make sacrifices. No, God came to earth, and he paid the the sacrifice himself. What? And it's just words spoken in the air, and that man goes back to his village, and he tells the people, and they all come to faith, and they all start following. They want to know more, so they listen to the Bible stories. They're illiterate, and it changes their lives. It changes the way they treat their children, treat their wives, the way they the way they live. Everything changes. They go out and tell their neighbors. It's just words spoken in the air, and it seems so fragile. Uh, it could easily break down. It can be mistold, and that's true. And for some reason or another, that's the way Christianity is. It's not about the big buildings. It's not about government. Even though it's so tempting to rely on those things, and we do it all the time, that's not what it's about. It's about these words spoken or read. Uh, One of the great stories, uh, lesson for me, is that Jerome Hines, the great opera singer, uh, was a philosopher, and existentialist, and his wife tried to get him to read the Bible, and he never would. He went to sing opera in Chicago, and he didn't have any books. His philosophy books weren't there. So he sat down. What is he going to do? So he pulls out a drawer and reads the Bible. He was overwhelmed just reading about Jesus. Okay? That's all it was. There was no church. There was no institution. Nobody was paying him money or anything. He just read the words and then went out to a local soup kitchen to volunteer to help that not, That very night. Mm. So um, that, that, I think, is an important lesson for us that we need to learn in the West because we've been so dependent upon endowments institutions, buildings, structures, denominations and everything and the great lessons especially of the early church and now of the global church is that it that God's power comes through words. We 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 think we believe that, but now we're going to have to live into it and trust it.
0: Well, Dr. Uh, Scott Sunquist, my guest, I know I have to let you go here in just a couple minutes, Dr. Sunquist. but I'm wondering uh, for the last several minutes or so here of our discussion, if we could talk about the value of, I think the, the phrase that you use is faithfully reading history, faithfully reading church history. What is involved in being a faithful reader of, of history, of church history?
1: Yeah, I, I list, I, I think I forget how many, like eight different things. But it, a couple of things I want to point out that we don't usually read history for. Or it's not a purpose. Uh, one of my call, we read history for little glories. And the little glories are the um, sort of the the signpost pointing towards heaven. Heaven's going to be like this. Heaven's going to be a place with no more tears. So when we see people giving up uh, their rich houses and cars and everything to go and to minister to the homeless in the city. That's a little glory that points towards that. And we need to look towards places where there was illiteracy and women were being abused because they couldn't read. They couldn't read contracts. Now, all of a sudden, these women are able to read and protect themselves and take care. So that's one thing. Another thing I think it's important to read church history for is to read it to understand evil. Um, We we usually don't like to talk about evil when, when we're being good enlightenment historians But it's there. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you don't believe in in, in evil, you're not paying attention to the newspaper uh, and what's going on around us in this world. And um, I think that uh, the church at times succumbs to the the great vices of uh, avarice and so forth. And therefore, they care more about money. And we've seen evangelists, church leaders and so forth sucked into that. We see church leaders sucked into uh, sexual passions and so forth and uh whether and it can be the catholic church the baptist church it can be your local church down the street a mega church it happens and we need to talk about those things and study them historically to see what's going on there it's a flaw in the form and development of christianity so we need to read to understand that i think we also need to read uh church history in order to understand uh so, well I mean, if i can just uh, yeah. quote myself here sure uh to have um, to understand the relationship between the kingdom of God and earthly kingdoms. Mm. Uh, again, that's especially for the West, where even today there are people who want to identify, you know, God bless America as a Christian kingdom that's going to save the rest of the world. Uh, and I think that's a misreading of God's intent, and it certainly is a misreading of the kingdom of God. It was never intended like that. So when we see those things, we read to understand the relationship between those kingdoms. And it's not always straightforward. It's often very cloudy, Uh, but we read to understand that and we wanna research that. And then I have some other things in there, but that's why history as I, one of my, I have three very important quotations I say a lot. I'm only gonna tell you one of them. Okay. History is very important.
0: I figured that would have been one of them. Also, biography. As you said right at the beginning, a lot of times, especially the way that history is written, if it doesn't contain a lot of adjectives, if it's not interesting and arresting, people say we can call it boring, and yet, uh, biography, that but almost everybody likes biographies, and that's history.
1: Yep. And, and, his, and, and Christian history is about people. It really is. And so we, if we don't... Uh, if, we, if we're not writing about people, we're not just writing about institutions and theologies, we're writing about real people. And uh, I've got some great examples about that uh, in my own study of history, that more that I drill down on a, a mission movement on, and read uh, the diaries and the biographies and the, um, the notes of lectures and sermons of these missionaries, and more like, wow, you get to know the person pretty well, and it's fascinating.
0: So reading history... Your book, The Shape of Christian History and History Itself, I mean, you you made the point, it greatly enriches our lives, our Christian lives, our relationships yeah. with the Lord. Any, any final thoughts? Any last words of encouragement as we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I think my, my last words would be for, for church leaders today, it's going to be very important for us to prepare for... Uh, you know, coming little persecutions and big persecutions in our society. We feel like we're going to lose federal funding, we're going to lose our land and so forth. Uh, I think we should expect it in order to prepare for that. Well, let's be willing to be good students of the early church and students of the global church and uh, swallow our pride and say, we need to learn from these people to prepare.
0: You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Scott Sunquist president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and author of The Shape of Christian History, Continuity and Diversity in the Global Church. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Ethan Forhetz on the International Humanitarian and Disaster Relief Organization, Convoy of Hope. We have community events across the country, rural initiatives across the country, where we go in and we partner with churches many times to make Mm -hmm.
1: this happen. So the church is the focal point, is the contact, the point of contact between the community and the goods. Uh, but we we deliver food to food banks, and we just help
0: people with the supplies that they need. Uh, and in this country, we're seeing more and more need out there as inflation just continues to get out of control. That's tomorrow at this same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.